Good morning. We're going to continue this morning in the book of Acts. And uh, I was reminded this morning as I was reading through it that there are difficult names to pronounce in the Bible. <laughs> and I was going over them uh, with my wife just now, and she said, you know, as long as you say it with confidence, it's fine. <laughs> no one's going to challenge you. So uh, I'm not passing the blame, but I will say that Daryl had a brilliant idea last time he was up here, if you remember, he handled it. Uh, with grace and just explained that there were a lot of uh, difficult names and then moved right on. But having only seven verses, I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, well, this morning, what we are going to talk about is Acts chapter 6. Uh, it's going to be on page 914 of your pew Bibles, and we'll get there in a few minutes. Uh, but before we get into that, we want to talk about now, I don't know if you saw the sign out front or on your bulletin, but it says church problems. And I know people probably drove by and thought, what? Church problems? That's completely foreign. I noticed not a lot of response there. So I guess you're all familiar with the concept that a church can have problems. And I think what might be surprising is if you remember last week we were talking about this glorious state of the church in Acts chapter 4, and I promised you it wouldn't last, and now it's broken already in chapter 6. As the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 6, we've got a problem already. And uh, before we get into the text this morning, there was a story this week that I thought, um, I came across it and I thought this particularly relevant. Uh, in 2008, many of you remember, there was a large economic recession. And this caused problems for people uh, all throughout the country, both businesses and uh, families and individuals. And one of the companies that was particularly troubled by this was a place called the Container Store. How many of you have been to the Container Store? It's not a clever name. They literally only sell containers. And that, for most people, is somewhat of a luxury. And they noticed that after the recession, just one quarter later, they were down 13%. And now most companies at that time thought, well, this is the time to do layoffs. And the container store had always said, well, we're people first as an organization. So this is where the rubber meets the road. Are you really people first? Or is that just a really nice banner to put up in the office? And so they said, you know, we don't know how people are going to feel about this, but, you know, we're going to do salary freeze, hiring freeze, we're going to take uh, unpaid time off, and we think it will be better for everyone here to suffer a little bit than for, every, than for a few people here to suffer completely and lose their jobs. And so they said, you know, we don't know how people are going to respond to this, but that's what we're going to try to do. So they explained it, they apologized, and they said, you know, we're trying to make all the cuts that we can. And to their surprise, the employees of the container store from top to bottom felt so deeply in the company's value of people first and were so uh, inspired by the top level people saying, you know, we're not going to cut people, that's what we're about, that everyone throughout the company at every level started coming up with ways in their own area, their own sphere of influence to start saving money for the company. Now, some people... When they would travel, they flew business class and they said, you know what, instead of business class, I'm going to fly coach. And actually, you know, I'm going to San Francisco and I've got family who lives there, so I'll just stay with them. I don't need a hotel. Uh, and then some of them even said, you know what, I'm just going to not turn in any expense reports at all because I know that if I'm saving money, then I'm saving someone else's job. And that was worth it to them. And the idea that came through so clearly, I mean, that's a beautiful story. 
But what struck me here is that sometimes the best ideas, sometimes the best solutions come from the people who are closest to the problem. Now, can you imagine if the the head office at the container store had come to the company and said, hey, look, you know, we're not going to pay for your expense reports anymore. Uh, you have to cover your own flights. You have to cover your own hotels. And uh, that's how we're going to save money. People would have been outraged. But that's someone far away from the problem trying to solve the problem. So instead, the container store said, you know, very openly, here's the problem. Here's what we think we can do. And what do you think you can do? And people came in and solved the problem. And that is actually what we see happening in the early church. And uh, this morning in our passage, we're going to see the problem of uh, preachers having too much work to do and getting pulled away from their primary ministry. Now, I'm glad to report that they solved this, and it hasn't been a problem ever since. So uh, Drew can tell you he's never been pulled away from his primary calling uh, on a weekly basis. But the problem here is that we as people... Human beings have a tendency to rely too much on one person. Now, there's two angles to that problem. Some of us, we want to look to one other person to solve all of our problems. And others of us want to be that person that others look to to solve all of their problems. Now, as a Christian, there's only one person we look to to solve all of our problems, and it isn't another person in our organization or in our church, but it's Jesus. And that means you're either replacing Jesus with someone else or you're replacing Jesus with yourself. Now, I'll let you decide which one's worse, uh, but neither of them are great. But here's what we need to recognize, and this is what the church recognizes, and this is how they solve the problem, is that God has uniquely gifted each person for the work of the church. And the church can only reach its potential when everyone is doing their part. I'll say that again. God has uniquely gifted each person in the church to do the work of the church, and the work of the church is not getting done unless each person is contributing their gift. Now, that doesn't mean we can let one person do all of it, or we can be the one person who tries to do all of it. And with that in mind, I will encourage you to open your Bibles to page 914. I will read to you, it'll be on the screens, and I will first open in prayer. Father God, thank you this morning for uh, the gift of your church and your people uh, and the wisdom that is handed down to us through the generations of the church uh, and through the century and millennia. We pray now that you uh, would use this text to inform us, to instruct us, uh, to teach us how to be your people, how to live uh, in this world and continue to serve you and point others to you. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Starting in chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, 
and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to walk through each of these verses, and we'll just recap what's happening here, and then I've got uh, three points that I think summarize what we are to take from uh, this passage. Obviously not everything we could possibly take, but what we want to look at this morning. And the first is this, in, in, in verse 1, the problem is laid out very plainly for us. At this point in the church, now this may surprise you, we're in chapter 6, but the church, the Christian church, Church of Jesus Christ, was not yet reaching Gentile believers. There were still no Gentiles. These were all Jewish converts to Christianity. However, they still had some Jewish proselytes. Now, what that means is someone who comes from another country, converts to Judaism, then accepts Jesus. Now, as we go on, spoiler alert, as we go on through Acts, they're going to cut out part of that process and say, no, you don't need to become Jewish first. You can actually just go straight to Jesus because Jesus has fulfilled all the law and customs uh, of the Jewish faith. But at this point, that was the only way to do it. And so some of these people who converted to Judaism from other cultures did not speak the same language as the Jews in Jerusalem. Many of them spoke Greek, uh, you know, and most of the Jews spoke Aramaic. And so there were problems that started to emerge. And the big problem here is that the followers of Jesus, the Christians who spoke a different language, had their, their widows were being neglected in the service of the church. So the church would hand out food to those in need, and the most needy in those days were typically widows, people who uh, had lost their support structure in one way or another, and the church would care for them. Now, some commentators look at this and say that this is an issue of racism. Some say that it's merely a problem of language barrier, and I don't think you necessarily have to choose one or the other, but here's what we can all agree on. There is a cultural barrier... Dividing the people of God. Can we all agree on that? Whether it's because of their race, because of their language, there is a cultural barrier dividing God's people. And as we continue to read the New Testament, what we see very clearly is that Jesus came down to, came to tear down all cultural barriers. Whether it's language, whether it's race, whether it's nationality, Jesus has come to unite all that humanity has created to divide. And so, whatever the problem is here, they're going to have to work on it. And so the apostles, they organize, starting in verse 2, they organize all the leaders of the church together, and they say it is not right, or literally in the Greek, it would not be pleasing in God's eyes for them to take this on themselves. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now we're going to talk about that, because that's kind of a controversial statement. Uh, and if you don't see it now, you'll see it later, and hopefully it will resolve the conflict after I open it for you. Uh, but the, the apostles realize here that they have a distinct calling and they have a distinct gifting. Their, their gifting and their calling is to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if the apostles in those early days of the church stopped doing that, the church would stop growing. None of us would be here today if they had not continued to do their calling. 
If they had compromised their gifting, their calling to proclaim the word of God, to preach Jesus' death and resurrection, and by the way, the term apostle here uh, throughout the book refers to someone who was a physical eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. It's a very finite number of those people. And if they give up proclaiming, bearing witness, sharing what they have seen, who else can do that? No one. But the other side of the problem is that if they stop serving the widows, if they don't care for people, if they don't reach across different ethnicities, different nationalities, then they stop being the church of Jesus Christ. So this is the apostles' decision. They have to say, well, either we stop preaching, which is what we're called to do, and then the movement stops growing, or we stop serving the widows and we stop being the people we've been called to be. So either you abandon who you are or you abandon the means to continue to grow and flourish and survive and make disciples of all nations. And then we continue in verses 3 and 4. And the solution that the apostles came up with was to have the disciples, all the followers of Jesus, choose seven men who are full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit and uh, send them out to solve this problem. Now, they didn't have the solution in mind, but they picked this, uh, or they rather said, seven people is who you should pick. And now I want you to pay close attention here that the only requirements put upon them is that they are full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. That's the only requirement. And I want you to remember that because next week we're going to do this congregational meeting and we will vote on receiving new officers. I want to remind you the biblical criteria is right here. They're full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And it's very interesting to me that the men that they selected were mostly, if not all, now commentators debate, but they all agree that it's mostly men who were uh, Hellenists, who spoke Greek, who were part of the group that was not being reached. And so what, you know, we'll talk about what we can learn from that, but the system had broken down within their group and they were closest to the problem. And so they said, we're going to let the people closest to the problem come up with the solution. They will know better how to deal uh, with these widows and they're actually able to communicate with them. They speak the same language as them and we don't do that. So, you know, now this may not sound shocking, but this is one of those solutions that's so painfully obvious when you read it Yet it's so rarely applied correctly, uh, whether it's in the church or in organizations, to let someone who speaks the same language solve the problem in that language rather than let the most high-ranking person solve it. Uh, but this is what the church does uh, in verses 3 and 4. And then in 5 and 6, uh, we see that... Uh, hold on, where are we? Uh, and they, it pleased the whole gathering, and then they chose these people... And uh, the quote, I just have one quote here from a commentator that I was reading, and I think, I couldn't think of a better way to say it. And they say it like this, the apostles assumed the leadership in making the proposal, but they left the final approval of the plan and the selection of the seven to congregational decision. Now I want, that's important, because once again, going to lean heavily into next week. This is what, if you notice when you got your bulletin, there's a little insert in there. And it's all the people who are, uh, is that true? Is it an insert or is that just mine? Okay, I didn't know if I had a special one. Everyone had one. 
And those are the people that we have selected. We have a committee here that spends all year, uh, a few people interviewing, you know, praying over literally hundreds of hours of represented people from your congregation who have looked at other people in your congregation and said, these are the people that we think God is calling to fill these roles. And that's what we're going to consider. Uh, and then in verse 7, we see the result of this leadership. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As a result of wise leadership, the church continues to flourish. Perhaps even suggesting, I, you know, I would think one of the reasons this verse is here is that it's suggesting that without this leadership, without this crucial decision and wise handling of the situation, the church would have struggled to grow. And so the question we want to answer is what is stopping us as a church from leading like the apostles? How do we govern wisely? How do we lead the church wisely? And I've got three points because this is a sermon and I am a preacher. (laughs) Now the first one, I was really proud of this wording and I bounced it off three people and two of them laughed at me. So uh, thank you, Drew, for not laughing. But the first point is this, and I will explain it, but it is that this temptation we have as people that whenever we dichotomize, we are tempted to hierarchize. Whenever we dichotomize, we are tempted to hierarchize. Meaning, just in case you haven't taken biology in a while, you forgot what dichotomy is, but... Whenever we sort things, whenever we say this role is distinct from this role, we always then have these roles sitting out and we say, well, it would be really easy to just start ranking them, right? Whenever we sort things out, whenever we recognize something is distinct, we want to rank them and put them, we want to, whenever we dichotomize, we want to hierarchize and create a pecking order. Now that's natural, but it's wrong. For us to assume uh, that, that because jobs are distinguished, they must be ranked, is completely unbiblical. That's not what we see happening in this passage, nor will you see it anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, you will see Jesus confront it directly. And uh, one commentator says it like this, It is not necessarily suggested that serving tables is on a lower level than prayer and teaching. The point is rather that the task to which the twelve had been specifically called was one of witness. So they're not saying, uh, the apostles are not looking to outsource this problem, get it off their plate because it's unpleasant work or because the apostles are lazy. They handed it off because they recognize that it is important work. Now a lot of us want to unload work when we think it is unimportant, when it's beneath us. But the apostles say, actually this work matters so much that we can't do it well because we're trying to do this other thing well. And if we give up, you know, we will either do both of them poorly or we will do one to the neglect of the other. And both of these are jobs that absolutely need to be done. And it's important for us to remember at times like this that Jesus turned our concept of power structures on its head. He said that he came not to be served, but to serve. In Jesus' kingdom, the highest position is the one of service. That's, I mean, the symbol of Christianity, as we see up there, is a cross. That is uh, the throne of Jesus' kingdom, and it is an instrument used for torture and death. 
And so the one who's willing to give his life is the greatest. The one who's willing to serve is the greatest. And so if nothing else, that should teach you that Jesus does not look at these roles and say one is superior to the other. He says they are distinct from one another. Jesus lived a right life before God and took our punishment. And so Jesus does not think positions of service are beneath him. Now we rank gifting most often when we're insecure about our own calling. When we don't know what we're supposed to be doing is when we are most tempted to do that. We worry too much about what others are or aren't doing. And here are the two symptoms of that. If you uh, are worried about ranking your uh, two sources of your problem is one, you're not doing anything. So if you're not doing anything, you might be worried about who's doing what, how much is getting done. Or if you're doing too much, then you start to fuss about, well, you know, this person isn't doing this. Uh, but here's the question for you is when, when you consider this temptation to hierarchize everything that is dichotomized, uh, and you look at Jesus' example, the question is, have you really let that sink in? Now, you may be able to repeat back to me what I just said to you, that Jesus does not think positions of service are beneath him or lowly because he was in a position of ultimate service, but do you, does your life reflect that belief? Would people be able to deduce that position from your lifestyle? If they looked at you and said... You know, how does this person think? How do they live their life? Does your perception of power and influence resemble that of American corporate structure or that of Jesus' example? On the surface, that's a pretty easy question because they're complete opposites. But when you really start to dig down into, uh, you know, I want to do this, I don't want to do this ministry, I want to serve here, I don't want to serve there. And if you ask yourself why a few times and really dig down deep to the core, is it that you are in touch with your calling and you realize this is how God has gifted me and called me to serve? Or is it because you associate prestige with certain positions and not with others? I can't answer that question for you. I mean, not for free. You can come see me and I'll, I'll charge you some money to do that. But that's, uh, cause that would take a couple hours of, uh, intense therapy. But, uh, that's a question for you to reflect on. Have you really let it sink in? The, the way that Jesus has turned power on its head. So the second thing is this. First thing was that when we dichotomize, we're tempted to hierarchize. The second thing is this. No, no fancy words in this one. In order to do our job well, we must let others do their jobs well. Now that's what the apostles recognize here. In order for us to do preaching, to do ministry of the word and prayer, we have to let other people do their jobs well. Because the implication here is that they were also trying to serve tables. They were trying to serve widows, and they could not continue to do both. It was completely unsustainable. The church would not grow without the preaching of the words. So the preachers need to be able to preach. The church would not continue to be the church without ministering to the needs of its people. So, and now I haven't said the word yet, but this is the chapter that most people associate with the beginning of deacon ministry. In fact, the word that we get deacon from is used in this chapter. And so in order for the preachers to be able to preach, the deacons had to be able to deacon. And in order for the deacons to deacon, the preachers had to preach. Do you see that? So this is kind of one of those dilemmas where it's like, what's more important to your car, the engine or the steering wheel? Now, if you make a, if you were willing to make a choice there, you just chose a mode of death, and I don't know why you would choose one over the other. 
But those are two necessary items for operating a car, and these are two necessary items for operating a church. And so if, now if, big if, hypothetical, if the apostles decided to try and do it all, not only would they be ignoring their God-given calling, but they would deny other people their opportunity for ministry. Now, I really want you to let that sink in because if we believe, as I said in the beginning, that God has uniquely gifted every Christian believer, his Holy Spirit lives in each believer and the gifts of the Spirit come differently to each believer and God has created you to be you and no one else is quite like you. If you are doing someone else's job, you are taking away someone else's opportunity for ministry. And that's what the apostles recognize. And so if you're doing somebody else's job well, guess whose job isn't getting done? Yours. And so this is where you need to pause, you need to reflect, you need to look at your schedule, how you spend your time, and say, what is my primary calling in life? What is my primary calling in ministry? Where am I overcommitted? And where do I need to roll up my sleeves? Uh, And where, in other cases, do I need to pass the torch? So where is it that I'm primarily called in my life and in uh, my gifting? Where is it that I really, really need to dig down deep and invest myself? And what are the things that I'm doing where I need to pass the torch? I need to say, this is a good thing that I'm carrying on, but it is not my calling. And God has given me a church full of people who have unique callings. How can I pass the torch? How can I hand that off to someone else and make sure that it's done well for the benefit of everyone? And so if you take it all, you're taking someone else's ministry. If you let everyone else do it, then you're not becoming uh, who God has made you to be. Now, that's that's a serious accusation there, but that's true. So those are the two temptations that, you know, I'll, I'll warn you about again at the end of this. This point is that if you're doing nothing, you're not living into your calling. You're not developing. You're not growing in the way that you should. You're not becoming the person that God has really created you to be. And if you're doing too much, you're actually maybe even preventing someone else from living into their gifting, someone else from growing, someone else from developing into who they ought to be. And so these are all serious problems, and they are all dealt with early on here in the church. And so the third third point is this. We must strategize to accomplish the full works of the church. Now, some people will hear me say that word strategizing and say, that sounds too businessy. You know, this is a church. We're not a business. We don't, we don't do strategy and leadership and all that. Other. Yes, we do. Now that word doesn't appear in this chapter, but we do. And if you don't believe that, uh, maybe that, maybe the word sounds unbiblical, but the concept is extremely biblical. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Proverbs, we are encouraged to live and lead strategically and with wisdom. And you'll see that, I mean, even if you go into uh, the Pentateuch, you read the first five books of the Bible, you'll see God's people, uh, sometimes they had the smallest army and they would come up with clever tricks and strategies that God has given them to deceive and strategize against other armies. Strategy in leadership is a deeply biblical concept that we ought not dismiss just because it sounds like something in the world around us. And by the way, the Bible never says everything in the world around us is bad. In fact, we recognize that every culture is usually 
really well in touch with some aspect of God's initial design for living and some, and then has some flaw that's opposite. And when we come together as a multicultural church, we get many, many of God's manifestations of gifting, but we also have the compounded sin of many cultures coming together. And um, that's what we're always dealing with here, but that is the struggle that has been given to the church from Acts chapter 6 on. And so this being strategic is actually what we as CHPC is doing right now. Right now, we've brought in a consultation, and we are trying to discern the best direction for the future of our church take. And so whatever you think of the specific recommendations, I want you to pause and appreciate that we're actively working to solve the church's problems. Because we recognize that we have church problems just like the church did. And even though the apostles stopped what they're doing and they said, we're going to deal with this problem, you notice the apostles didn't have the solution. They turned it over to the congregation to decide. And that is actually what we will be doing as a church uh, this coming week. Now, in the book of Acts, uh, if you don't see it here in Acts chapter 6, I promise you will see it as we go on. There is an underlying racial problem in the church. And so, when you look at the fact that there is an underlying racial problem, what you will also notice as we move throughout the New Testament is that the church was intentionally strategic in solving that problem by selecting leaders who could be effective in dealing with their contextual problems. And so if they had a racial problem, they would not say, well, we're only going to let Jewish believers solve all of these Gentile problems. They said, no, it's a Gentile city. It's Gentile believers. We're going to appoint Gentile leaders who are familiar with the situation, who are familiar with the people, and, by the way, who have received the same gift of the Holy Spirit that we have, and we're going to trust them with the problem. And so next week, we have our annual congregational meeting, and today you've already gotten, and if you haven't, you'll get, and a few other things too, you'll get an overview of those that have been selected for church office. And I would remind you all that the church does not use the same criteria as the world. You are not to evaluate these people who have been selected in the same way that you would conduct a job interview at your your place of employment throughout the week. That is simply not the criteria that's laid out for us here. Uh, in fact, well, I can't decide. Yeah, I got time. So I, for many of you who don't know, I grew up at this church. And at age 21, I was nominated for a church office. And they thought, well, he's a little young, but, you know, we'll talk to him. And they sat down with me. And the person I was talking to said, uh, so, you know, which office do you think, you know, you would be best serving in? And I said, I said, now, th- ignore the juxtaposition of term, but I actually think elder is a better fit for my gifting than deacon. And this person said, uh, yeah, I see that, but, you know, you're 21, which doesn't necessarily, not what elder means in most cultures. And they said, no, why don't you take a turn at deacon first, and then next time you can be promoted to elder. And so I declined, and I said, I don't think that's how it works. I don't think, now see, that phrase, promote, and I'm not, this isn't against that person because I've heard that actually in every church I have ever worked in, not just this church. Every church I've ever worked in, which is four. And uh, that idea is us falling into that temptation because these roles are dichotomized. They are hierarchized. 
that these are two distinct roles, and so they must be sequential in promotional level, but that's not true. It does not, one is not a prerequisite for the other. And the thing that we really need to consider here is that, uh, age is not a restriction here. Uh, we don't see ethnicity or nationality or racial background being a distinction here. All we see is wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the only consideration of nationality is intentionally choosing other nationalities to serve because they want to serve and reach those. And so if we, as College Hill Presbyterian Church, want to be both a multicultural church and a multi-generational church, and if we apply the same wisdom and strategy of the apostles, does that not mean we should be looking to fill our leadership with people who can lead us into those areas? There is no age or race restriction in these roles. In fact, there is intentionality. And so... As we look at selecting our leadership, which is what I'm encouraging you all to prayerfully engage in this week and in conversation with one another, remember that our church leadership is not just a reflection of who we currently are, but it is us leaning in to God calling us, who God has called us to be, who God has called us to love, who God has called us to serve, and who God has called us to bear witness to. Would you please join me in prayer?